1: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and this week, getting excited for the Women's World Cup. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing that we cannot get off of our minds. And today, you've got me, Daisy Rosario, senior supervising producer of audio here at Slate. And later in the show, I'll be joined by Jessica Luther. Jessica is an investigative journalist, author, and podcaster. Obviously, the waves is not a sports show, but much like the Olympics, when a World Cup happens, people tend to get pulled in. And when it comes to the Women's World Cup, the United States is the most dominant team since the Women's World Cup even started. This year, the U.S. women will be going for a three-peat. That's right, they won in 2015 and in 2019. And if they win this year, they will be the first team to ever win three in a row. Now, my guest today, Jessica, is someone whose work I've followed over the years, and we were both at the Women's World Cup in France in 2019. She was there covering it for her media gig, and I was there just because I wanted to be. And I got to tell you, it was incredible. When I started posting that I was there, so many of my friends who do not care about sports at all started reaching out. And so that's kind of the spirit of this episode today is, you know, If you care about women, if you care about feminism, you're probably going to end up wanting to watch some of this. And what should you be watching for? And also, something like this is more than just a sporting event. It's a world event. I mean, part of what was so magical about being in France for the 2019 Women's World Cup was I just have these incredible memories. I remember watching the U.S. women play the French women. I was sitting in a park in Paris. I wasn't at the match itself. But I was sitting in a park in Paris, surrounded by French fans, just wearing my US kit. And just sitting there like proudly eating a baguette watching the match by myself on this like inflatable screen with all these other fans from mostly France, and everyone was so fun and playful. I mean, like, all of these Parisians after the match patting me on the shoulder and being like, eh, good job, U.S. I mean, it just was so fun. It's everything that you really want an international event to be. So we want to get you excited for this event and also help make it hopefully a little bit more accessible to you we're going to take a quick break and when we are back i'll be joined by jessica luther and we will be giving you the waves viewers guide to the women's world cup Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes too. Like last week's, which I loved, it was all about what is happening with wedding dresses. So subscribe to the Waves today. Thank you.
2: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to say for it?
1: Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Daisy Rosario, and I am over the moon right now to be joined by author, podcaster, and investigative journalist, Jessica Luther. Jessica, welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. What is kind of the narrative going into this World Cup? The U.S. women have won more World Cups than any other country, But also the Women's World Cup has not existed as long as the Men's World Cup. Going into this, I see a lot of people being like the U.S. is so dominant. But as someone who watches all the time, I feel like it is much more up for grabs than people realize. So what's going on this year? I mean, what are how are people feeling about the U.S.'s chances and who else should we be looking for? I mean,
3: the chances are great. the squad is deep, uh, but it is very young. I'm going to give you some stats. So there's 23 players on the roster for the US. 14 have never been to a World Cup. 12 will be playing in their first major international tournament. Only nine played on the last World Cup team. Seven players are 25 years or younger. Only 10 of the players for the US of the 23 have made more than 50 appearances for this team. Like this is a young squad. I mean, they have famous veterans and Rapino and Alex Morgan and Rose Lavelle and like the names that people probably know they're there. The team hasn't lost since November. So they're still rolling. Uh, but they've also had major injuries since then. We could talk about injuries as one of the storylines of this World Cup, just all over the world, major women in soccer are going down because their knees are blowing out. And that's true for the US as well. So yes, You should root for this team. It's a good chance you're going to see the U.S. in the final, but we have like Germany is phenomenal. England just won the Euros and like they just stomped through the Euros. They also have injury. It's hard to say. Australia is one of the co-hosts of the tournament. They have Sam Kerr, who is one of the most remarkable soccer players you will ever see in your life. Uh, They're are so many possibilities here um you know brazil i want in my heart for brazil to be great for marta um uh, but you can never count them out like because they do have like they're similar they have some real veteran players i think marta's on her sixth world cup
0: marta chasing oh she's got great pace too the state by holstead burger marta for brazil great forward can she score yes she can Marta makes a mark. Was that a push that should have been punished? But make no mistake, after that, it was super solo skill from FIFA's World Player of the Year.
1: Tell listeners a little bit more about Marta, because I think if you even if you don't know much about soccer football as it were, you probably know that Brazil is very well known in the world when it comes to the sport in general, regardless of gender.
3: Marta of the single name. I mean, that's how big she is within the sport is you can just call her that. And everyone knows who you're talking about. She's been around for a really long time. I know we're going to talk about Megan Rapino and bowing out after this World Cup, but it's also Marta's last World Cup. And she has told us that. And I think, If you watch for no other reason, watch for to see one of the greatest players ever uh, take the pitch for the last time at the biggest tournament. Um, She probably won't get the minutes that we're used to because she's older now. I feel her there, but she's still so electric when she's out there playing and you just never really know what she's going to be able to do.
1: Uh, And she's got some young folks on the wings with her. So, who knows? I mean, there are just fantastic players. I think, you know, same thing with the men's world cup. People went into it last year knowing, like, it's probably our, like, it's going to be our last time seeing Messi here. It's going to be our last time seeing Ronaldo here. Same. Rapino, Marta, like, watch these greats while you have an opportunity. And I should have mentioned a possible. Uh, team that can
3: win this whole thing is canada uh they won the gold medal at the last olympics they have another the top international score in all of soccer ever is christine sinclair most likely this is her last world cup as well like it's such an interesting tournament because we're going to see so many major stars sort of do their final bow while we're also going to see the next generation that's coming up behind them that they've paved the way for that's growing this game and
1: you can see all of that at once I think one of the names that everybody has probably heard, maybe heard, is Trinity Rodman, in part because, you know, everybody wants to point out that her dad is Dennis Rodman. Trinity's doing this on her own. Trinity is wildly talented <laughs> without this man having been that active in her life. Just an incredible player. I mean, really pops when you are watching Trinity, and she's one of these rising stars that is going to her first World Cup and is somebody to watch in general. What are your feelings about Trinity and who else should we be watching, Jessica? go Google her
3: immediately and watch what she can do on the pitch. One of the sad stories for the U S is that Mallory Swanson, who is amazing. I was actually at the friendly here in Austin, Texas against Ireland when she went down with a horrible knee injury and she is out, but like, and so she would have been one of our, our good veterans on the, on the pitch. But what we're seeing in her place is someone like Trinity Rodman, who's going to get this first run out. Uh, expect big things. They're just at a friendly against Wales as their send off, She was, Trinity was on the bench, came in in the second half, scored a brace. They won two zero. Uh, so the bench is deep because we have these young women like the Trinity is a bench player, uh, really says a lot about the quality of the U S but I think her Sophia Smith, I'm, I'm so excited about. So one of the other big sad stories is Becky Sauerbronn is out with I think some kind of foot injury. She is like the heart and the soul of this team. She was the captain. Um, she's out, she will not be playing. So the back line, she's a defender. Everyone's a little nervous about midfield back line. Uh, but Naomi Gurma, uh, young, I think, let me see. She was, she won rookie of the year and defender of the year last year in the NWSL. First time a player's ever done that. She's remarkable. It'll be really fun to see what she's able to do now that she's going to have this spot.
1: I just love seeing that the age range of the team, I think, is like they said something like 22 Rapino like has become the joke.
3: (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't even I think it's 18. I think Alyssa Thompson is 18 years old. Like she just went to prom and is now going to go to the World Cup. And she, again, is one of these players that doesn't look real when you're watching her, like what she's able to do.
1: So let's talk a little bit about Rapino, who obviously um, has not only been a you know a part of the team for years but obviously got so much attention during the last World Cup, which was obviously also during the Trump presidency. And there was all of that stuff. I prefer to think of like, you know, her beautiful pose after her goal, and just in general, all of her talent and everything she's done. But I I know that for, you know, people especially coming to this a little fresh, that's going to be one of the big stories they're looking for. I mean, what kind of player on the field? Would you describe Rapino as, and and what do you think she's going to bring, knowing that this is her last one?
3: Yeah, it's hard to say. She's thirty eight. Again, when it's you know, it's like Marta, like who knows how many minutes she's really going to get? But she's still for the OL Reign, which is her NWSL team. Like she's still playing pretty well. She'll con- you know she'll finish out the season after the World Cup is over. She. Is so clever in how she plays the game. She's great at assists. She has one of the most famous assists ever to Abby Wambach's head at the end of who are they playing? And I can't, I can remember the actual hit, but, um, I literally can always see
1: the play in my mind and I forget every other. I
3: know, I know this is why I'm (laughs) bad at my job. Um, but yeah, so she's famous for assists, but also can just put the ball in the back of the net, like in 2019, She won the golden boot at the World Cup for scoring the most goals of anyone who played in the tournament. So she has the ability to both facilitate and to make things happen on her own. And she's just... She is exactly what you want an athlete to be. She actually just told Time Magazine in this wonderful interview that she was their cover person. And I'm just going to quote her. She said, I'm exactly the brash, arrogant athlete that Americans love. And I think that's so true about her. She plays that way. She's so authentic. That's such a weird word to use these days. But you do feel like she's just herself on the pitch, off the pitch. um, I hope we get to see a little bit of that magic.
1: I also want to talk a little bit about Alex Morgan, just because, you know, I feel like in other sports you get so much attention paid. Like Serena Williams had a baby. Alex Morgan had a baby and, you know, is back. And I think, yeah, people who don't follow these players, you know, week to week may not realize like some of these women are mothers. Like, they, you know, it's it's really just incredible to see what they are capable of that doesn't really get written about as much in, you know, In obvious ways and in your face ways. Obviously, people like you cover this. I talk about things like this. But, you know, I think a lot of people will not realize that, like, that's a mom out there. You never really know how someone's going to recover from pregnancy.
3: That is quite a physical thing to go through. And we have, I'm not gonna, I'm sure I'm gonna miss someone, but Alex Morgan, Crystal Dunn, Julie Ertz. I'm I'm sure there are other mothers on the pitch, certainly on other teams. (laughs) These women are remarkable. And juggling being a mom and playing in the World Cup. I just I actually can't even imagine I went to cover the World Cup for two weeks last, you know, four years ago. And that was like a whole production f- for my family uh, for me to be gone. But yeah, some of these are going to be moms out there playing in their first World Cup, I think for all three of them. Crystal, I
1: believe, was the most recent.
3: And she's been phenomenal for the Portland Thorns. She came back just you can't say enough about Crystal Dunn. They move her around. She's so often not even playing in her natural position when she's on the U.S. team. She's often asked to play defender, where she could be a striker. She can basically play a winger. She could do all sorts of things, and she doesn't love being a defender. But man, can she defend if she needs to? So uh, she, yeah, she's just come out the gate postpartum, and has really—it's—it's uh, it's been really something to watch
1: we're gonna take a quick break now and when we come back jessica and i are gonna continue to talk about this team how the women got so good and so dominant in the world but also we're gonna talk about our experiences both being at the 2019 women's world cup in france so we'll get into that right after a break But if you want to hear more from The Waves, you should check out our Slate Plus segment. Every week, we've been recapping the latest episode of season two of HBO's And Just Like That, probably better known to you as the Sex and the City sequel show. On today's Plus episode, we're covering episode five of And Just Like That. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, please consider joining to support The Waves. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows just like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com Forward slash the Waves Plus. We are back with the Waves, and I'm here with Jessica Luther. We are trying to give you all the information that you need to get into this year's Women's World Cup.
3: Press, Haran, lovely ball, Morgan, fabulous
1: goal. Alex Morgan on her 30th birthday. That was the sound of Alex Morgan scoring a goal against England in the 2019 semi final of the Women's World Cup in Lyon. I was at that match and it was fantastic. My uh, one kind of uh, complaint, obviously, about the, the Women's World Cup being in Australia and New Zealand um, is just the time difference. You know, I know some matches are like 9 p.m., US East Coast, 3 a.m. 6am. So it will be a little challenging. I think it's worth it. Jessica, what are you thinking about, you know, kind of this, this time difference and how to access the matches?
3: Yeah, I I so it's going to be on Fox and FS1. That's how in the US, that's how you're going to watch it or Telemundo. One of my plans is I have YouTube TV and I'm just going to DVR all of it. I'm going to not DVR, I'm so old. I'm just going to have YouTube record it. Uh YouTube TV and then I might watch it later. But I yeah, I was just talking to my husband about this. I was like, I think I might have to just get up. Like I might um and so we are lucky the first match the US the first two that the US play will actually be at nine PM Eastern, eight PM Central where I live. So that's very nice of them. They'll be on Fox. Uh but then when we get to the third match against Portugal, it will be two AM, three AM in the morning. What I'm trying to do, Daisy, is imagine that I'm gonna get up, watch the game, and then be a really good person and go running in the dark in the, cause it's very hot where I live and then, and then go back to sleep. And that will be my reward is like, I've done this thing. So that's one of my, like my plans for how, how to deal with the middle of the night. I think I'm just going to have to do it.
1: There's a part of me that just worries. Like it feels like we've had so much momentum the last few years with uh, women's sports, just getting more coverage, more access to watching it is huge for me in general. And we'll talk a little bit more about that after the break for a couple of reasons, but I, I'm i just worried that, yeah, because of the times that the matches will be on that, you know, we won't get as many people kind of watching these matches and checking in. And that just bums me out because the team deserves it. Women in general deserve it. The athletes deserve it. But also because I know how these things work. Right. Like if the ratings go down, they'll be like, oh, people don't care as much again, like, you know, they'll take these incorrect lessons away. And it's just been really great to see everyone having more access to watching these matches.
3: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if like FS1 replays matches during the days when we're awake. Like, I don't quite know like what the broadcasting schedule will be like in that way. But yeah, I have the same worries. Like, it's bullshit the way that we talk about women's sports and how everything is hung on ratings. And, you know, statistics can be moved around in any way to say what you want to say about them. And they're so weaponized against women's sports all the time. So I have the same fears. U.S. market is humongous for women's sports. Um, But, you know, last, when it was in France four years ago, over a billion people watched at some point in time, watched women play soccer. That's something like Yeah, I know we're going to talk about like the growth of the game is just huge. And of course, there's like the other side of the world will be thrilled (laughs) to be able to watch um, during their time, you know, with their awake hours. But yeah, this is a a worry for me. And and I don't know how I'm if I personally am going to be able to do it. (laughs) So if it's like if I have if I don't know if I can, then yeah, I don't I don't know what the casual viewing of this World Cup will be like.
1: You and I were both at the Women's World Cup in France in 2019. You were there covering some of it. I went as a spectator. But part of why I went as a spectator was because I missed the 2015 final. It was very hard to access where I was. I could not seem to find access to the channel showing it. I couldn't get online. I literally remember wandering around going into bars, like probably starting 30 minutes into the match because I gave up on trying to access it. via the internet. And I just I struggled. And it was so frustrating to know that our women had done so well. And here I was literally just unable to access the viewing of the final. And so in 2019, making a little bit more money, having a little bit more flexibility in my life, I was like, I'm going because I'm sick of missing this. Um, you are there covering it. Tell me a little bit about your experience covering it, Jessica,
3: yeah, I was so I was there for group stage. So the way the World Cup works is that this year there's 32 teams. This is the biggest they've had. They divide them into four groups. They in that group of 4, they all play each other. Whoever whichever two teams out of those four have the most points moves on to what we call the knockout stage where as soon as you lose you go home. We get to the final. So I had gone to the group stage which is such an exciting parts because it's constant like we're just about to have days and days and days of like phenomenal soccer happening. Being there in person was a little exhausting cuz uh like one of the fun things in in the sport is that you're moving around, right? So in France I went to like five or six different cities uh within a you know 10 12 day period uh and it was so much fun. I it was actually really interesting cuz in Paris the stadium was pretty far outside of the city. uh, And inside the city, there wasn't a lot of fanfare about it. Um, But then you'd get on the train to go to the stadium and you'd just be like packed in there with other people and and jerseys and stuff. But then when I went to the smaller towns, like I went to um, Ron's to see Jamaica play Italy, I think. uh, And the Jamaican fans were there. And like, I actually wrote a piece about, I interviewed Sadella Marley who was helping to, we could talk about how much, the federations do not help these women's teams make it to the world cup. She was there uh, literally financially supporting the reggae girls. Um, And I interviewed her and, but I also went and just interviewed Jamaican fans who'd come all the way to this beautiful, but small town outside of Paris to watch their team play. And they were so excited and you could just feel it in the little towns. I really liked the group stage. I liked just the constant nature of the whole thing, even though I was
1: exhausted by the time it was finished. And also, I think the energy in France was pretty amazing. Also, because like the French men had won the Men's World Cup the year before.
3: And there was a lot of hype for France. I I didn't mention them as possible winners this time. You can't ever really count them out. They've had a lot of, again, it's one of these teams where the Federation, they've had a lot of uh, infighting. Uh, And so it's hard to say where they are at this point, but they could be great again this
1: time. Yeah, they really could. So the energy in France, yeah, in general, I mean, they had just won the Men's World Cup the year before. You know, you have all these fans descending on various cities around the country. It really was just a fabulous vibe. It was really magical to see how many American fans had made the effort. So many. I mean, I like in Paris, there were so many people in U.S. jerseys. The amount of French people that just were like, how are your women good? Like they just, they were baffled understanding kind of the place that the U S men have in the world of football versus like our women being so dominant, but yes, like our women are really great. And that surprises people if they don't follow sports in general, but especially women's sports. I mean, Jessica, you know, we can, we can bat this one back and forth, but how do you explain to people why our women are so good? Well,
3: yeah. I mean, Title IX, you know, the 1972 law that basically said you have to let women play sports in part. That was part of what it did. Uh, it was humongous. I mean, it's, you you could credit international women's soccer for <laughs> Title IX as uh, part of the reason that it's so um, such a force at this point. But it also helped that we had a collegiate system. So like we had Title IX and then that would you know the girls would play sports and then it would feed directly into a, a collegiate system that didn't necessarily, doesn't really exist in other parts of the world. Uh, so there was a kind of uh, pipeline that, that was just there. Um, one of the things we've seen, so Portugal is making its debut at the Women's World Cup, which might be surprising if you know anything about men's soccer, international soccer. And in part, it's because they just didn't have an infrastructure to build a women's team, and they in the last like decade or so they've really gotten it off the ground. They are a dark horse if you're looking for one uh, in this tournament. And the U.S. of course they've had women's professional leagues in and out. The NWSL is the longest standing one. It's doing great now, constantly expanding. Uh, it's really got a foothold. So on the professional level, it was kind of back and forth, but there was always the collegiate underbelly uh, that really helped um, get women through the pipeline and then at the same time it matters that men soccer here is not that big of a deal like there was sort of a hole that women could
1: fill that people would pay attention sometimes i would say like it kind of yeah it got ignored the women kind of quietly got great because people weren't paying attention (laughs) and there's something about the nationalism of all of this which
3: i both like feel weird about and totally participate in at the same time uh there's a way that nationalism will trump misogyny. So all the ways that we um, dislike women in sports constantly all the time in the, in this country, despite things like Title IX existing, they kind of fly out the window. People are willing to like put on their red, white, and blue and, and cheer these women on when they are representing the country in a way that we just don't see when women are professional athletes. Uh, and so it is this kind of, singular moment uh when when the world cup or the olympics sort of roll around and and people are able to sort of set aside all their big feelings about women playing sports and just root for the team and so we've seen at the same time the other thing i want to mention so these women are remarkable so like they're like phenomenal players and then one of the legacies of rapino and her generation of players is we have pay equity and women's soccer. Uh, and they have fought incredibly hard for that. They have made a, they have literally gone to court over it against the Federation. And that has the ripple effects across international women's soccer are phenomenal. Like if you don't know if you want to support the women's world cup and put your time and interest into like, think of it as a feminist act like these are they are unionizing around the world they are going up against incredibly powerful football associations we could talk about Nigeria Canada France Colombia Argentina like there are so many places Ni- um, Norway Ada hergeberg like really has like took it to the Norwegian um, FA and like it is a phenomenal labor story and the us has really led that and so they've they had a pipeline, they had Title IX, they had a giant country to pull from, and they just demanded that people pay attention and, and watch and that they get what they deserve from that.
1: I think one of the things implied, but just to be very clear, like, yes, a lot of these international players come to the U.S. to play for college, like they come here for college. The connections run deep at this point, point. Um, and, and that just makes it all the more fun.
3: I will also say it's also a very gay sport. And so you get a lot of these women like dating each other. I, w- I did want to mention Out Sports had a, a an article that was titled, At least 88 Out of LG- out LGBTQ Athletes Competing in the 2023 Women's World Cup, which is a record. Um, but we like one of the most famous is that Sam Kerr from Australia is dating Christine U.S. from the US, uh, and they're adorable. And so, yeah, you get a lot of like a lot of these players know each other, they date each other. There's a lot of like kind of Behind the scenes drama, but part of that is that the world is only so big that they that they're all playing in because they're all trying to get through this one pipe. You know, there's only so many pipelines at this point for them to participate. So, um, yeah, it's really fun how they all do, and that they all know each other. They all talk to each other. That's part of what we're seeing with the ripple of labor movements within the sport too. Is these are women who are talking to each other and and propping each other up.
1: I think you're right, like, that this nationalism will often trump the misogyny. I remember in the 90s, Brandi Chastain
2: and finished the match. Even up again, but it also means that the USA could win the World Cup on this next kick.
3: Chastain will take it. She missed a penalty kick against China in the Algarve Cup, and they lost that game.
1: They win the women's world cup. She rips off the t-shirt. She's in the sports bra, famously. And I remember my my high school boyfriend's dad, who was like former military, literally was like, "What is this? This is great!" And he like went to the closet, pulled out an American flag, hung it outside of the house. Like it was that kind of thing. So when you say that, you know, the nationalism trumps the misogyny, that that is what I think of is are those moments and. Uh, the opportunities for people to really you know, get pulled into how incredible these athletes really are.
3: They are. And these teams are so phenomenal. And I just can't emphasize enough that we do not know who's going to win. Like, there's The U.S. has a really good shot here. And no one will be surprised if they do a three-peat, which would be the first time that a team has ever done a three-peat men or women. Uh, but they are not guaranteed this win. Uh, and it is going it's just going to be so exciting. I mean, I'm of the generation, like I was born in 1980. So obviously we had title IX the whole time that I've been alive, but you know, I, you can't tell I'm, but when I stand up, I'm six feet tall. Like I played basketball in middle school. Like no one cared about us. Of course. Uh, to this day, like I, I'm a dork. I, I cry at the almost, always at the beginning of a women's sporting match that I go to because I'm just like, look at all these people that are here cheering for women. And I I want to point out that the opening match, um, they had to move it. They originally had it in a stadium that held something like 42,000 people. And the demand was so big that they actually ended up moving it into the stadium that they will be playing the final in. And they have sold out the 80,000 tickets. And soccer, I mean, the Matildas... The Australian team, like they're a big deal there. Sam Kerr is a big deal, but like soccer is not Australia's number one sport. Like they have other things they care much more about. So the fact that there is already such fervor. Like I feel emotional even thinking about the opening match and like all those people there for women to play soccer and to cheer them on. And they are I mean, they're gonna see a hell of a tournament. And oh yeah, I got FOMO already <laughs> for the for this one. I <laughs> know.
1: <laughs> Jessica, I am so happy to get to talk to you in real time, especially not only because you are a writer whose work I love and follow, but you have been working on a dissertation. So the world has not been hearing as much from you. So it's a special treat for you to make some time for me and for our Waves audience to help us uh, you know, get ready for this Women's World Cup. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you.
3: I had to flex my podcast muscle and brain again to be here, but it was totally worth it. And I enjoyed
1: every second of it. That is our show for this week. The Waves is produced by Shayna Roth. I'm senior supervising producer and Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place.
0: Hey, Waves listeners, we're going to be talking about Episode 5 of And Just Like That. It definitely contains spoilers. Welcome to The Waves. This is our And Just Like That recap. Episode 5, Miranda Finds a Twin Bed. I'm Shayna Roth, Senior Producer at Slate.
2: I'm Hilary Fry, Editor-in-Chief at Slate.
0: Every week, we're recapping the latest of season two of HBO's Sex in the City sequel series, the fashion, the quips, the WTF moments. But before we get to that, I like to ask each new guest, what is your relationship to Sex in the City? The show, the movies, the women, and just like that, all of it.
2: So I moved to New York City in 1997, so sort of right before the show aired. And I had a job at a little magazine called Lingua Franca, on the business side. And my boss, Robin was a few years older and she was like desperately waiting for sex in the city to arrive on HBO. I wouldn't have even known about it otherwise. Cause I didn't have a TV, let alone cable. I had like a radio and I listened to NPR and I had no money and or anything. Um, but she invited me for a sleepover for the premiere. So I went to Robin's new apartment in park slope and we put on our sweatshirts and our pajama pants or whatever. And watched the premiere, and I have to say it was pretty much in my life consistently as a young single woman in New York for the whole duration. Spent a lot of hungover Saturdays with my friend Susie watching like reruns on HBO, like when they would air in the middle of the day uh, from bed, eating pizza, whatever, smoking a lot of cigarettes. And um, so I, I'm a little younger than the characters, but they were sort of these models of the best and worst of what might happen for me as a young woman in new york as as the millennium turned
0: i absolutely love this because you were kind of living the sex in the city life while the show was happening in real time i know myself and a lot of guests we experienced sex in the city after the show had aired so i'm so curious what was the general culture around the show when it first came out
2: it was a huge deal, but what's funny, right? We didn't have phones then we weren't texting each other you You would sort of get together with friends and watch when you could whoever had access to cable again, this was like it was such a different time. but when i it, it was like Betsy Johnson all of a sudden, you know talking about um who was styling Carrie for for those seasons back then, I remember her shop. I think it was on the Bowery. It was like suddenly these things that were. Part of uh, of New York in a way that obviously I wasn't accessing as like a kid in Brooklyn with like no money, but you you could start to see the influence creep in, and it both not just in in not that people were dressing like Carrie or like the characters, but just the the sort of feeling that New York was this place where these kinds of characters were around. You would start to sort of. See them, you know, brunch culture, all that stuff. I think was really influenced by the show, and obviously figuring out like who you identified with as as a character. And I find that to be like such a funny thing to think about now. And um, your boss Alicia Montgomery, who runs audio at Slate, uh, asked me which character I was like if I did a BuzzFeed quiz, and I had never done one, and I was a Samantha. <laughs> Her just total embrace of the wildest things in New York. She lived in the meatpacking district, which back then was cool. I mean, it's like, I'm sure they shot at Florent, which was like this great French diner that, you know, if it was a really special night in New York, you'd end up in a scenario that felt like maybe it could have, you could have been in the background of a sex in the city scene. It was great. And it was talked about and sort of, It wasn't hated on, really, that I remember. It it wasn't that we thought it was perfect, but it was absolutely delightful and different. That was just
0: some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to Slate.com slash The Waves Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash The Waves Plus.
1: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes